tell me about why you like the platform. They're like, oh, I can find stuff and I can filter. I'm like, cool. So like, would you really use this platform on a regular basis? And they're like, oh yeah, I mean, it seems great. And I'm like, mm, okay, well, you haven't logged in in two weeks. So would you actually use this platform or are you just telling me that? Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you, my podcast listeners. And it's based on the lessons that I've learned from all of my guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Taylor Ryan. Taylor, are you ready to rock? Yeah, I am. Actually really excited. This is great. Yeah, I'm really excited to bring you to the audience. And I'm going to just introduce you right now to everybody. And we have something in common in that we're both American entrepreneurs living outside of America. Taylor Ryan is an American entrepreneur living in Copenhagen, Denmark. He is a six-time startup founder with 13-plus years of marketing and startup experience spread across 10 industries within large and small organizations. His current projects include Architecture Quote, which is a SaaS platform for architects, Clint, which is a creative digital marketing and growth hacking agency, growthsecrets.org. It's an online digital marketing course. And finally, you can find him at taylorryan.io, where you can learn about his public speaking workshops in innovation, consulting. Taylor, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, thank you for the introduction. I mean, so many different areas to go into, but yeah, the main source of, of income and what I spend most of my time on these days is Clint. You can go to clintmarketing.com. It's a growth hacking agency. Growth hacking is basically like digital marketing. It's, it's kind of a, a bullshit jargon buzzword that people swap in in order to basically, yeah, wrap it in tinfoil, call it on fat. But it's, it's marketing. And yeah, I've been doing this stuff for ages now and being in a, a different country has its own set of challenges in terms of scaling. But no, you nailed it with the intro. Thank you for mm. that. Yeah, and I'm just curious. I mean, I've been living in Thailand for many years and you've been living in, in Copenhagen. So, you know, it's such a different, you know, those are very different countries. I'm just curious, like, you know, what are some of your, let's just say that there's a listener here that's in the U.S., an enterprising young man or woman that says, I want to try to live abroad and live that life. What kind of, what, what has been your experience and what advice would you give them? You know, it's, it's interesting. So um, short story, I, I was on a American reality show called House Hunters International. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or seen it. It's on the Home Garden channel. It's, it's definitely got a certain demographic that kind of skews a bit older and, and more chilled out. But yeah, I got a ton of LinkedIn connections after the show aired. And it was a barrage of <laughs> like, you're a douchebag. And also, hey, how did you do that? And the, the really short answer of how it's done is like, you just have to try, right? So I, unlike a lot of the people that I meet that are expats here in Denmark, I didn't fall in love with a girl and then make my way over here. It was more, I was just working this 
you know, crazy amount of hours back in Washington, D.C., 12-hour workdays. And I got a chance to just travel for a super short period of time to a place like this that has a lot more of that work-life balance. And yeah, it, it blew me away. Like you get 25 days mandatory of paid vacation. That's a month. So yeah, it took me about four months and it was like having a second full-time job of setting up all kinds of interviews, targeting, automating as much as I could in order to eventually get two different offers, one within Vienna, Austria, and one here in Copenhagen, Denmark, leverage the two to, to get a nice wage. And, and yeah, within five months of my visit, I was out here working and making a life out of it. That's cool. And I, I have a, I'm going to tell you a quick story and then I'm going to ask you a question Shoot, yeah, in relation fine. to this story. After living in Thailand for nearly 30 years, I thought I pretty much know everything about Thailand, Thai people, <laughs> Thai culture. You know, I, if I don't know by now, come on. And I, uh, when my father passed away, I talked to my mom and, you know, my sister and my mom and I agreed that my mom would come and live with me here in Thailand. And I thought that this, you know, Thai personality type is just so great for taking care of, particularly for elderly people. But there's one little thing I missed, and that is it's very hard for Thai people to push or encourage an elderly person to, let's say, exercise just a little bit of resistance and they're going to back off. And I've learned this kind of lesson now that, you know, that that's a challenge. And when you get older, it's hard to exercise and you, you do need a little boost. And I think about there was an angel woman that took care of my mom for a while when I was back in the U S her name's Ann Walker. And Ann, Ann was just like, all right, you got to get up. You got to go. And mom would be like, I don't want to exercise. And she'd be like, all right, I'll give you five minutes. I'll give you a back rub and then let's go. And she just wouldn't let up until my mom, you know, had, had to exercise. But it's just like this one little thing that I just kind of missed is that little, little thing that does make a big difference. So if you're retiring here and you're healthy and all that, I think it's great. And if you're retiring here and you're towards really towards exact the serious end of your life and you just need comfort, it's perfect. But it's that period in between that I just didn't understand. So my question to you. What's something that you now have kind of come to understand that you really misunderstood or you didn't really understand when you first, you know, arrived? Yeah, I, I have an answer for this, but it, it always, it pisses off the Danes to say it, but it's fine. I mean, none of them are listening anyways, or at least not many. So I miss competent people. And, you know, I, I came from a place where there was such a motivation to be the best at your craft or be something in the way of, of motivated to continue to, to reach upper echelons of whether it's your own business or the companies that you're working for. But the spirit of, you know, I, I have to, to work hard in order to achieve. There's this really strange thing in psychology. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I'll explain. So the idea is basically that sometimes the dumbest people in the room think that they're the smartest just because naturally they don't know enough about the subject. So therefore they just proclaim things. Unfortunately, I found that to be the case out here where there are so many people that claim to be experts in things that they've never touched. And it's because you have such an amazing balance of life in terms of working seven hour days. Most people roll in if they have kids are rolling in at 9 30, 10 o'clock, leaving at four. And then, you know, with your month off, like you don't necessarily have the time to become that amazing, like give your life to this craft type of person. 
And so what I find is that I encounter a lot of people that have reached a really amazing role or, or are at some leadership significance. And then you actually sit down with them and it's like, bruh, like you don't, like you are so far removed from reality. Like I love your confidence, but it's, it's bewildering versus I, I think in the States, you have people that really give themselves to their career and, and that can be also a balance, you know, there, there can be good and bad on both sides, but yeah, <laughs> the Dunning-Kruger effect is real. I'm sure that there's plenty of them saying, damn Americans just all focusing <laughs> on work and, you know, just try to be an expert on this and, you know, yeah, but it's a great point. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, one of the things about doing this podcast that I've learned is just the different cultures and the way different cultures see things. And, you know, I, I often talk about the Thai culture, which is not driven by money. What's important at work is relationships. Money is important, but, you know, it's not a high priority. So if you walk in and go, we're going to have a competition for the you know, person who sells the most of this and that, you know, that type of thing doesn't motivate them compared to we're going to go out for a weekend to a resort where we're all going to be together, you know, and it's just such a, a different thing. So, yeah, it's interesting to learn other cultures. And I think the one last thing that I would say is that particularly China, China was really a challenge for me. I went to do my PhD there and I was going back and forth between Thailand and China. And, you know, everything I grew up with about China was, you know, communism and, you know, just this is such a backward country. And it's just yeah. so, yeah, I was feeling that people were going to be, you know, tied to whipping posts on streets and, you know, whatever. And, you know, you just arrive and it's just amazing. And then you see that it's this really, really pretty developed place, particularly the big cities like Shanghai as an example. But then you also then see all of these customs that are very, very odd and strange and, you know, maybe gross in some ways for you. And so my challenge to myself when I was in China was like, wait a minute, China's been here for 5,000 years as a civilization. You know, if I just walk in here and say, that's wrong, that's not the way to do it. I don't do it that yeah. way. You know, you just realize that you're just bringing this, this framework and you're refusing to break out of it. So really the challenge I find as living abroad is how to, you know, how to step out of your frame, you know, the framework that you're built in and just observe, you know, you're never going to be able to participate in the way, let's say that a typical person there will, but just observe. Yeah. And I just find that fascinating. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that self-awareness that you don't realize until you kind of go back to visit and you're like, oh, how weird. I used to do all of these other things. I don't do any of those anymore. And then it's like this weird, like Benjamin Franklin had the same thing where he lived in Versailles for a really long time and came back to Pennsylvania and was like, all right, cool. So I'm no longer an American. I'm certainly not French. I'm in this weird kind of in-between and it's, it's bizarre. And I, I experienced parts of that when I go back you know, every like couple of years, but yeah, I totally get what you mean. And there's, yeah. there's culture frameworks and schemas that, yeah, are very different. Yeah. All right. Well, first of all, it's great getting to know you and, you know, we have some things in common and it's fun to talk about. And I know some of the listeners are saying, like I was, when I was 26, I'd finished my MBA. I was working for Pepsi in Los Angeles. And I asked myself, could I make it in Bangkok, Thailand? And I know there's some listeners out there that are thinking, could I make it, you know, in London? Could I make it in Spain? Could I make it in China? And the challenge really to the listeners out there who are thinking that is, you know, here's Taylor as an example. You can do it. So 
Let's move on to the question. And the question of this podcast is very simple. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. So yeah, the circumstances, I guess I can take a few steps back and lean into it. So I graduated in uh, December of 2008, the height of the economic recession. And I was super ambitious. You know, I, I think the age of seven or eight is when I first started mowing lawns for money. Then you graduate on to raking leaves, shoveling snow. Then it's like, okay, what else can I, can I really start doing as a kid that's just trying to build something in the way of business and make a little extra money? And ultimately, I see a lot of like parallels between today with the economic downturn, COVID-19, and 2008. I was ready for anything and nobody was hiring, especially with somebody that's entry level. And despite all my best efforts, yeah, I, I kept getting doors slammed in my face. So I realized that I had to build my own businesses in order to really get a chance at, at making decisions or scaling something in the way of you know, revenue and, and making real money. So I bounced around for the better part of two or three years with guys that I admired from afar. And of course, then you start working underneath them and then you're like, oh shit, like <laughs> this is terrible. But it did give me a, a bit of momentum. And ultimately I found myself doing two to three networking events a week and ran into some guys that, you know, like, I, I don't know about you, but every once in a while you encounter people that you're like, man, this guy's just really sharp, you know? And like, I miss that. I miss the whole thing about networking and hopefully things will open up again. But I met a couple of guys that were just really bright and they were going in on a e-commerce startup that was related to a very hot niche at the time. It was uh, food tech slash e-commerce. Gluten-free food was like the big craze. Do you remember like <laughs> yep. gluten-free was like, yeah. So they had this interesting concept of building an online platform that would allow anybody with a food allergy, whether it was gluten or nuts or whatever the case is to find, discover, new and interesting food items that would allow them to enjoy all their favorite foods that they maybe can't have or no longer can have due to a food allergy. Fairly okay concept from the outset, I guess. We landed on a name. It was called Gluten-Free VIP. <laughs> like the worst fucking name ever. So, you know, I'm like, okay, let's do this. And, you know, it, it, was, it was a period of about eight months of building a, a full platform for transactions, looping together with a number of different vendor portals to end up getting close to like 1,500 products on a site. We then ended up building out an app for iOS and Android to allow people to yeah, discover new items and then, and then start ordering. And at that point, I guess we were just ready to be you know, financially independent and just see this rocket ship growth. And the reality is it wasn't coming and it, it never did. And so like, it's, it was one of those really strange things where you start trying to like reconcile. It's like, but we did everything right. Everything's functional. It works. Why isn't anybody buying? And one of the key mistakes that I, I think we really missed out on was asking people the right questions from the very beginning and finding out from the people that are going to buy from you whether or not this is something they're going to use. 
And so one of the conversations that I ended up having with a couple of people that had signed up over, you know, we were looking at like five users a week. Like it was really sad and the number of orders were less. So like, this is not something you're going to make money on. So I'm sitting down with them and, you know, I'm like, well, tell me about why you like the platform. They're like, oh, I can find stuff and I can filter. I'm like, cool. So like, would you really use this platform on a regular basis? And they're like, oh yeah, I mean, it seems great. And I'm like, "Mm, okay, well, you haven't logged in in two weeks. So would you actually use this platform or are you just telling me that? And they're like, Mm. oh no, of course not. Like I get my food from the grocery store and you guys charge shipping on like every item. So definitely not. And then there's like this really just sad kind of, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. If I had asked those questions eight months ago, I think I'd be in a much better position to pivot and do something about it. But because we didn't, we burned tons of time, tons of energy, money, of course. And it was something that we never really bounced back from. And after a certain period of time, it turned into a money pit. And everybody writes all these crazy books about how to build a business. Very few people write books about how to disassemble this giant thing that you've burned eight months, a year, five years into assembling. And, you know, there's, I use a lot of psychology phrases that was originally my background, but, you know, it's this sunk cost fallacy, which is the thought that, you know, if you just kept feeding money into something, you can't look at all the money that you've already fed in because that is not representative of what is actually going to amount into the future. So the idea of like all this time that I've spent and all the energy that I put in has no bearing on whether or not this thing is going to be successful. And yeah, it, it, it's really tough to separate yourself from that. So mm-hmm. VIP was an amazing learning experience, but man, what a waste of time. <laughs> so how would you summarize what you learned from this experience? Well, I think I learned some of the, the really basic stuff of, of doing your research in advance and research in advance doesn't necessarily mean, I don't know, like Googling just general topic ideas. It means talking with ideal customers, you know, the ideal customer profile types and actually getting a feel for whether or not somebody will actually, like that, that little <laughs> one singular word does make a difference. But also aside from that, I think some of the organizational stuff for anybody that's ever built a startup, you learn so much at breakneck speed, mm. whether it's building something in the way of, of new platforms that when you realize like, oh, there's off the shelf tools that you can actually infuse, you don't have to build everything from scratch, hiring people. One of the hardest things that I hadn't done up until that point was firing somebody. So having to tell somebody who has two kids, look, we're, Anush, we're out of money, bro. I, I'm really sorry. And he's like, well, yeah, but I have kids and rent and a family and that as I think I was like 25 or 26 is really difficult because yeah, like you're, you're not necessarily, you're not prepared for that. Or if you've never done it, it certainly doesn't feel good. It never does, but yeah, having to take on that element of responsibility where, you know, like the things that were said where it's like, you said we were going to be doing this for years. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I thought we were too. Mm. And, and that can really mess with like a lot of kind of existential what is this? Why are we doing this kind of moments? Yeah. So those were some of the bigger learning lessons for sure. So maybe I'll share a few things that I think yeah. about this. So the first one is, you know, the best validation is sales. 
And, you know, I was just imagining having a gluten-free shop and just trying to see how much we're selling and just actually the physical shop, how much could we sell if, you know, like that type of thing. And I think that's one of the, the lessons that I've learned is the idea. And I, I have a story that one of my guests had told about how he was in Cambodia and he had came up with the idea of selling wine. So he had to go through an import license and get that set up his business. And he went through a long process and finally got the wine in and he just didn't sell it. He couldn't sell it for whatever reason. Maybe he was out of money. Maybe he was out of time. Maybe he was out of energy. Maybe they weren't buying what he imported, but he basically failed at this. And I asked him, you know, what's his advice? And he said, he just said, start selling. And I said, well, how do you start selling when you haven't even imported? He said, there were wine importers. I could have bought a crate of wine and started yeah. selling it and just started selling it. And I was like, damn, <laughs> you know, that, that <laughs> really... True. That shook me. And, uh, and so now the second thing that I want to talk about is that I was on a podcast a couple of days ago called Startup Operator out of India. And they, they asked me to come on and I, I talk a lot about my, what I've learned from the lessons of 350 podcast interviews that I've done. But I decided for them, I would do some additional research. And so what I did is I went through all of my interviews that were startup based. Luckily, I have some interns working with me. So they've been helping me go through and we've identified all of them that were startup failures. And then we tried to classify what they claimed were their biggest mistakes, basically. And then I tried to see, mm. is there some commonality in there? And so this is not my opinion, although I have my own opinions on startup from my own experience. But here is what my guests say. Would you like to hear the list of the top six? Yeah, hell yeah. So the first <laughs> most common mistake was bad hiring decisions. The second most common mistake of startup companies, of people that I interviewed that failed in startup, was poor management of time and people. The third was ineffective teamwork and collaboration. The fourth was waited too long to start selling. The fifth was weak accounting and finance. And the sixth was low product quality. Mm -hmm. I'm curious with all of your experience, not only from this story, but the other companies, but what would you, is there something you would add in there? Is there something that was surprising yeah. in there? Is what? Yeah. So my experience, I've written a ton of content around this stuff and done actually a number of presentations around it because yeah, I've, I've had six startups and five of the six were just disastrous, but you know, it's all building and, and breaking even is in some sense as, as good as almost uh yeah, succeeding, or, or maybe it's it's actually quite quite the opposite. But mm. the idea was, I found that finding product market fit was usually number one on my book. So, like, I've met so many people, especially out in Scandinavia, that have this crazy, I guess, drive towards sustainability, impact, all of these things that are, of course, good for the planet, and and why not? But it's a lot of greenwashing and virtue signaling. And so the reality is there's a ton of people that are selling products that there is no market for. And without speaking to customers, like I really miss this really obvious ask. I should have spent at least a month doing that or a few weeks to talk to 50, 100 people that would buy from me in the future. I found that was a major area of failure. Once you're over the hump and you're maintaining some form of, of revenue and, and you're, you're growing, 
I found that a lot of startup founders miss the ball when it does come to finance and how they dole out anything in the way of equity or are looking at splitting up something in the way of, you know, like a, a round for, for funding. And there's a number of like great documents out there, like uh, Y Combinator has the Safe Docs, yep. S-A-F-E, and those are fantastic. But I see this all the time. I do a ton of, yeah, like mentorship for free and, and stuff like that for small startups. And there are some scumbag douche nozzle advisors out there that will come in with a fancy background. It's like, well, I was director of this at a giant bank. So put me on your board as an advisor. And for that, I'll take 5% of your total equity. And it's like, yo, fuck this guy. Sorry for my language. <laughs> but, you know, like, there's so many people that come to you with a handout. And if you don't have a good idea of how to do sweat equity, how to build out a model that allows you to protect some of your intellectual property, like you are in a, a really tough situation in terms of like real scalable growth. Mm-hmm. And so many founders miss that because they're so focused on building the product or service and not necessarily protecting what it is that they're building, which, you know, is, is sometimes counterintuitive. It's interesting because recently I've been signing up a lot more clients in Thailand and in Asia as what I would call kind of outsourced CFO. But really what it is, is advising and making sure, number one, I think my biggest advice for startup is you need to have monthly financial statements, a monthly close. If you can do that every single month, then you've eliminated almost 95% of any problems you're going to face in the world of accounting and finance. Yeah, you've got to think about your spending and all your revenue and all that. But first thing is that, and so I have a a team and my business partner is very great at basically cutting the Gordian knot in a startup and basically saying, we're going to get this thing so that we've got monthly financial statements within three months. And it doesn't matter to me, all of the different people who don't want to do this and don't want to do that. So that's the first thing. But then the other one is, the other one is talking. I mean, since I was an analyst in the stock market and looked at all different ways of structuring equity and structuring advisory and boards and stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, important things that, you know, people probably give away in a lot of cases because they just don't know. So fantastic. Well, listen, based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah. I mean, it's, tough to crystallize it into to just one area, but I think by the, the narrative that I've given, it's having, it's having those really early conversations. Your product will evolve, your brand will evolve, whatever you're building will pivot, take a completely different trajectory. I know very few people that had this kind of target and went down one specific line and never, never strayed off the path that they were on. Like you have to be flexible. So yeah, the things that I found from doing some of these conversations, I think if I had done that earlier, I I would have been so much better off. So I encourage everybody to do that, especially if you're building like a software as a service SaaS product, like it's so important. And it's one of the first things that investors ask for in a pre-seed round is, do you have any type of acknowledgement from potential customers that say, yes, I would buy this in a heartbeat once it's live. Having those is so powerful to go into an investor meeting and say, look, we're already ready. People have already validated the product and said they want to buy from us as soon as it's going. So like, can you cut me a check tomorrow? 
you know? Yeah. And that, um, that kind of stuff works. That's valuable advice. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've seen some people do in startups that I thought was really smart is they went to their target customer and they said, look, we're developing this. Here's where we are in this. We think it would be valuable to you. Can we do some pilot tests together? And oh man, then, you know, you really uncover, you know, in, and particularly, you know, if it's a big company, they, they may be able to devote one person to helping kind of play around with this, you know, type of thing. So those are, you know, great, great pieces of advice. So just get out there and, you know, I love the, the product market fit is such a great, you know, I'm, I'm picturing trying to, trying to fit, it, you know, it, ah, it doesn't. And, and I also think about the idea of chasing revenue. I mean, I think that's what we do in the startup world so many times. And you're talking about, it's rare that we just go on one straight path. You know, we gotta, you gotta chase the revenue. You gotta mm-hmm. chase where the customers, you know, wants it. And it's usually not, you know, exactly where, where you start. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Yeah, so I'm, I'm running this agency and it's been a ton of fun to some degree. Running anything in, in like COVID-19 times is just, yeah, it's, it's a grind. But I've been focused on building a few things that are really scalable. And it's never one thing when you're kind of a serial entrepreneur, you're always ADHD and spinning a bunch of different plates. I'll never be able to escape that. That's just what life is all about for me. But I, I really believe that building scalable products that are never a one for one is incredibly important. And so I, I meet so many people that are trying to build service, service-minded or, or very service-oriented companies that are not a digital product, that are something that requires money in, in order to pay employees, in order to get money in the bank. And you kind of creep along doing that, but when you create a digital product, you can sell the same thing a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times. And I've been a part of a number of those companies um, on yeah, a very long journey here and back in the States. And so I've been developing a couple of different things. So growthsecrets.org was something that was this growth hacking masterclass that I just kind of figured I was delivering common sense, but a lot of people are really into it. So I'm in the process of kind of bolstering some of that. I've priced it way below anything else that's out there. So mm. that's kind of like the first and foremost thing. And the other kind of moonshot idea is an automation tool that allows for outreach at scale using a couple of buying signals and applying a bit of machine learning to it. So yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot going on. I know. Well, it sounds exciting, but you know, the reality is it's, it's just a lot of work, you know, to grind. Yeah, it is. It's a grind. Like I, I know the feeling. I, I, I don't know about you. I, I can't remember if it's like Simon Sinek or, or somebody else, but there's that whole stupid analogy. Well, if you love what you do, then you'll never work a day again in your life. But, you know, like I, I do love my job. And it's a fucking grind. Like I'm in here 12, 14 hours a day. I stopped doing seven days a week because that was, yeah, like killing the relationship with the girlfriend. But I don't know. Like, do you find yourself in a place where you have the balance and at what point do you get there? Yeah. And, and in my case, I have two businesses. One is a coffee factory. And luckily for me, my best friend runs it and he's been running it for 25 years. So it every night we talk about what's going on. And then as far as accounting and finance, that's kind of my area. But generally that company can run on its own without that much involvement with me. And then I take care of my business. Mm-hmm. Then 
by chance, I stopped teaching at university about six or seven years ago. So as an analyst, I would teach like in the evenings or weekends. And I just felt like I learned so much. So I decided about five years ago, I decided to put my, what I had taught online. And so I created something called the Valuation Masterclass about five years ago. And then when COVID came, you know, I, and then I, I wrote some other books and then I turned those into online courses. One about investing for beginners, another one called Finance Made Ridiculously Simple. And I started to create these courses. And when COVID came, I just knew I wasn't going to sign up any new corporate clients for my research business or not much. So I just, and I, I, I did a barter, basically. I went out to the market here in Bangkok to students and I said, you're probably not going to get a job right now. And I can't hire you, but if you trade your labor and knowledge, I'll trade everything I know and try to help you get a job and get, you know, experience. And so I've had literally nearly about a hundred interns since a year ago. And as a result, I've, I've bolstered all my courses. I've created now a total of six online courses. And when you talk about scale, you know, I, and I know from my business partners, you know, it's like, come on, get back to our main business, you know, and let's go and let's grow that, which I'm doing now. But I'm like, don't miss the opportunity that you're talking about. Each of these can be, you know, between a hundred and a quarter of a million dollars in annual revenue with limited work because you invest it all up front. And then I have Facebook groups for each one. So once a week I do office hours into those groups, but you know, the scalable aspect of it, something that you said that really you know resonated with me and that's a scalable revenue stream that i didn't have to the degree that i have today 12 months ago so thank you covid <laughs> i like that and, and to that point i think that's something that in every job interview like six months from now every hiring manager is going to say hey what'd you do for like that whole year year and a half where everybody was like shut in and you know like uh, Pornhub and video games, you know, like that's not an answer. Netflix so I, and chips. Yeah, like it's crazy to me. So good on you. I totally yeah. respect that. Well, I think that there's another aspect that I would challenge the listeners to also think about. And that is that when COVID happened, first of all, obviously it's scary and all that. But, you know, I'm still young. I'm only 55. I'm in good shape. But the first thing I did is I went on a five-day water fast, meaning just having water. And of course, taking vitamins and, and of course, having an espresso in the morning. But the point was, I knew that, you know, water fast helped to reset immunity. And so I, you know, looked at the research on that and I said, let's make sure I've got that myself healthy. And then basically the second thing is I said, I'm not going to let governments across the world, including Thailand, everywhere that decided to, to just shut everything down, not quarantine the sick, but quarantine everybody. Yeah. I'm not going to let this beat me. I will not only survive, but I will thrive from it. And that was my challenge. And keep in mind, in our coffee business, revenue went down by 80%. And so that was brutal, but we survived through it. And I'm coming out much stronger with new revenue streams, with new, and, and this is one of the things that happens from an investment perspective is that the companies that do survive end up having better profit margins, more efficiencies. And that's part of the reason why markets actually, you know, are justified to some extent for being strong. So I challenge the listener out there to take a moment, stop, don't get caught up in the whirlwind of fear and of helplessness or hopelessness and apply 
your ingenuity. Maybe do some barter, but figure out a way that you're going to come out of this better, stronger, faster. <laughs> Love it. All right, man. Now I'm excited. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, to reduce risk in your life. So go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and download the risk reduction checklist and see how you measure up. Now, as we conclude, Taylor, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, the company that houses my six courses, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, I, I mean, damn, I'm getting all jazzed up right now, Andrew. Like it was really well put. Yeah, I, I have a couple of like small things. So I've been looking to hire somebody that does design work and like it's unfathomable how rough so many of these portfolios are. And it's like, wait, you have YouTube at your fingertips. You don't have to take my course or any of yours in order to find a, a, just a knowledge base and a wealth of, of information that can get you somewhere. And if you only have three projects that you've ever worked on, like, I mean, reach out to people and be like, hey, I just put together 10 social media posts for free. I, you know, I just need to build my portfolio. I love the way that you're kind of doing the bartering system because that's how I got started as well. So I absolutely agree with your sentiment on that because showing a resume or a portfolio with nothing, regardless of your job uh, experience or whatever it is, your field of focus is not going to get you anywhere. So I absolutely agree with that. And you know, the last thing is I am building stuff. If you want to learn more about me, I'm the only Taylor Ryan in uh, Denmark. So look me up on LinkedIn. I also run clintmarketing.com, growthsecrets.org. That's the online masterclass and taylorryan.io if you're looking for workshops or want to talk innovation and stuff like that. Beautiful. And for the listeners out there, we'll have all those links in the show notes to just go to the show notes, click through and reach out. You never know what can happen. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.